Paul's letter to the Philippians, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. I pray that this evening we would be attentive to your voice and that as we hear your words, you would be changing us. Amen. Well, Pete mentioned um, earlier that today is our last Sunday at St. Andrews as a family. I arrived here as a student almost 16 years ago to study clinical medicine, and Dawn and I were married here the following year by the previous vicar, Bob Key. There we are, looking very young and fresh-faced. Well, we've since had four children, now ranging in age from four to 11, all of whom have been baptized and grown up at St. Andrews, which they see as their second home. Well, it's been wonderful to have been part of St. Andrews for so long and to have been able to partner in the gospel work of the church and to be grown and to help others to grow in faith. Well, this sermon gives me the opportunity to echo the Apostle Paul's thanks to God for a church that's very dear or that was very dear to his heart and to pray for them. So uh, following the pattern of these verses, Philippians 1 to 11, which you can find on 1178, I think it would be helpful to have that open if you could. Following the pattern of these verses, I am going to speak about the saints, their partnership in the gospel and their growth. Or if you want to be completely on message, the headings could be St. Andrew's, Resourcing Mission, Growing Christians. I'll stick with my original headings though. Well, I'll start with adapting the words of Paul's greeting. Jonathan and Dawn, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at St. Andrew's, together with the clergy and staff, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. 
Well, I thank God because St. Andrew's is God's church. God's people called by God and set apart by God for God's own service. Well, set apart is the root meaning of the word saints, and it applies to all Christians. And the, things that, the thing that Christians are set apart for is to serve God. Paul and Timothy describe themselves as God's servants. Servants is a term applied to all the prophets and all the bigwigs throughout the Bible. Anyone who's anyone is a servant. During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers repairing a small defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the rider, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done, he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. It was none other than George Washington. All the saints are servants together of God. We each have different roles, gifts, and responsibilities in the church, but we're all set apart for God's service. And the service of God has the very first call on our life. A story relating to another U.S. president helpfully illustrates the priority of God's service. Well, John Kenneth Galbraith, in his autobiography, illustrates the devotion of his family's housekeeper. Her name was uh, Emily Gloria Wilson. And he wrote, It had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. He is sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. When I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. Tell that woman I want her here in the White House. (laughs) Well, God is our master, and serving him is our priority. Well, the saints are provided for by their master. All our needs are met by his unmerited generosity, his grace, referred to in verse 2. And the service for which God equips us is not a solo activity. It's less like fly fishing, more like cricket, a team sport. Well, Paul in verse 5 speaks of the partnership of the gospel, a word that's often translated fellowship. And this brings us to our second heading, which I've called partnership. Well, it has been really great to be part of a lively, diverse community covering the full age range and made up of people from all corners of the globe. We've loved and appreciated the care and support given to us through home groups, through Monday mums and by individuals, as well as the fellowship of being on various teams, such as those involved with holiday club, youth work, all-age worship and various other groups. The Christian life is meant to be a life of fellowship, One autumn, a young woman named Linda was traveling alone up the rutted and rugged highway that weaves through the Canadian Rockies. Linda didn't know that you don't travel to Whitehorse, the capital of the mountainous territory of Yukon, alone in a run-down Honda Civic. So she set off where only four-wheel drives normally venture. The first evening, she found a room in the mountains near a summit and asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call so that she could get an early start. 
She couldn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at that request, but as she awoke to early morning fog shrouding the mountaintops, she understood. Not wanting to look foolish, she got up and went to breakfast. Two truckers invited Linda to join them, and since the place was so small, she felt obliged. Where are you headed? one of the truckers asked. White horse. In that little civic? No way. This pass is dangerous in weather like this. Well, I'm determined to try, was Linda's gutsy, if not very informed, response. Then I guess we're just going to have to hug you, the trucker suggested. Linda drew back. There's no way I'm going to let you touch me. Not like that, the truckers chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and one in the rear, and that way we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind as they made their way safely through the mountains. Linda needed the fellowship of those truckers to safely travel the dangerous route, and we need fellow Christians to, who know the way to safely lead ahead of us and gently encourage from behind. As a family, we've enjoyed plenty of this type of encouragement and guidance from the saints at St. Andrews. Fellowship is not simply the cozy enjoyment of company. It has a purpose. The, the word refers to joint ownership, to participation in a common purpose. And that purpose is making the gospel known. Without that commitment to the gospel, the church is simply a social club that happens to meet on a Sunday. Biblical fellowship is based on the commitment to the defense and proclamation of the gospel. And that commitment characterized the Philippian church, and it has been my experience too of St. Andrews. St. Andrews is committed to reaching out with the gospel to all sorts, from mums and tots, to young people, to international students, to the retired. And St. Andrews' commitment to mission partners is wonderful sending out and supporting dozens of individuals who have taken the gospel to all corners of the world. Many of these people are my heroes and have encouraged me to step out in faith. The current mission partners, you can see their pictures on the board at the back and they appear in the notice sheet in strict rotation. It's Laura Kite's turn this week. But the truth of this passage is that all of God's people are mission partners. That is what we have been set apart to be. So Tim Curtis's quarter century or so as a mission partner working with the Enclet people in Paraguay is matched by Suzanne Clark's quarter century of work as a mission partner working amongst our very youngest children, the tumblers, in room one. All saints are partners in mission. Just as Paul needed and appreciated the partnership of the Philippians, so we need one another in the hard work of defending and confirming the gospel. I need you. The Christian writer Max Lucado illustrates the need for partnership in writing of an experience watching his favorite basketball team, the San Antonio Spurs, play an away match. He writes, as I took my seat, it occurred to me that I might be the only Spurs fan in the crowd. I'd be wise to be quiet. But that was hard to do. I contained myself for a few moments, but that's all. By the end of the first quarter, I was letting out solo war whoops every time the Spurs would score. People were beginning to turn and look. Risky stuff, this voice in the wilderness routine. 
That's when I noticed I had a friend across the aisle. He too applauded the spurs. When I clapped, he clapped. I had a partner. We buoyed each other. I felt better. At the end of the quarter, I gave him the thumbs up. He gave it back. He was only a teenager, no matter. We were united by the higher bond of fellowship. That's one reason for the church. All week, you cheer for the visiting team. You applaud the success of the one the world opposes. You stand when everyone sits and sit when everyone stands. At some point, you need support. You need to be with folks who cheer when you do. You need what the Bible calls fellowship. And you need it every week. After all, you can only go so long before you think about joining the crowd. Partnering in the gospel is a result of sharing in God's grace, as Paul puts it in verse 7. By God's grace, he works in us, giving us that partnership and bringing to completion the good work he began at conversion. And thinking of this work of grace in our characters takes us to our third heading, growth. One of the first Philippian Christians was a lady called Lydia, a trader in purple cloth who you can read of in Acts 16. She was converted whilst listening to Paul explain the gospel. She would no doubt have explained her conversion in terms of understanding what Paul said, perceiving the need for a decision and then deciding for Christ. But the Acts narrative describes the same event from a God's eye view. It's described in terms of God opening Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And so God began in Lydia the good work that he will bring to completion on the day of Christ, the last day when Christ returns and all is brought to completion. I'm not sure when exactly I was converted, but God was certainly working to open my heart during my teenage years and in particular during my three years in the other place. It was during my time, though, at St. Andrews here that I've been really blessed in, uh, God, in seeing and feeling and knowing God bringing to work that, uh, that completion, bringing that work to completion, that's what I mean to say. Of course, there's a very long way to go. Uh, you only need to ask my wife for that. But I can be confident of the result. We can be assured by Paul letting us know that God is a completer finisher. He will complete that good work. Each of us is God's handiwork. We are each his pieces of artwork. And God is throughout our lives putting the finishing touches to his masterpieces until we will at last one day be ready for that glorious unveiling of the great exhibition on the day of Christ. And that is the day of harvest, the day when the tree will be full in fruit. I never cease to be amazed by plants, especially fruit trees. We have in our garden, or what is our garden for a few more days, a wonderful apple tree, an apple tree which keeps us in a generous supply of apple, uh, cooking apples. In fact, we have a whole stash of cooked apple in our freezer that we do need to dispose of in the next few days. So if anybody fancies some, just have a word with me after the service. But anyway, this apple tree never ceases to amaze me. Year in, year out, it faithfully and almost magically produces uh, this wonderful crop, coming into leaf, producing the blossom, and then those miniature apples which grow and mature into luscious fruit ready for harvest in September. There's no hurry. There's no sudden rush. The growth is gradual and sure. 
And the good work that God is doing in the lives of Christians is like that process. Geared to being completed on the day of Christ, God is maturing his people and growing in their lives the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ so that we might be pure and blameless, fruitful in all aspects of our life, internal and external. Jesus spoke of himself as the vine and his disciples as the branches in the vine. To be in the vine is to be united to Jesus by faith. And those who are in Christ, in other words, all the saints, will produce fruit. Fruit is inevitable if the branch is connected. Once in a while, one of our lively children has swung on the branch of our lovely apple tree rather too vigorously, and it has been snapped, effectively becoming disconnected from the tree and the life-giving, fruit-producing sap no longer being able to flow. The result, of course, is a withered branch that fails to produce any fruit. The production of fruit is completely dependent on that essential connection. A farmer once planted two fruit trees on opposite sides of his property. One he planted to provide a hedge to hide the unsightly view of an old landfill site. The other he planted to provide shade to rest under, under, uh, near a cool mountain stream which run down beside his fields. Well, as the tree, two trees grew, both began to flower and bear fruit. One day the farmer decided to gather the fruit from the tree nearest his house, the one used to provide a hedge from the landfill. As he brought the fruit inside the house, he noticed that it was a little deformed. The symmetry of the fruit was not very good, but the fruit still looked edible. Later that evening, while sitting on his porch, the farmer took one of the pieces of fruit for a snack. Biting into the fruit, he found it to be extremely bitter and completely inedible. Casting the fruit aside, he looked across the field to the other tree, over by the mountain stream. After walking across the fields, the farmer took a piece of fruit from the other tree and bit into it. Finding the fruit to be sweet and delicious, he gathered several more pieces of fruit and took them to the house. The fruit was greatly affected by the nutrition of the root. The root bears the fruit. In the same way, the fruit of our lives is determined by our connection to Jesus. Our lives demonstrate the spiritual connection manifest that spiritual reality of being in Christ. But what exactly is the fruit of righteousness that Paul speaks of in verse 11? What does a growing Christian look like? Well, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. Love that was apparent in the Philippians and is, in my experience, very much apparent in, at St. Andrews. And that love is actually the love of Christ himself expressed through his people. Paul speaks in verse 8 of longing for the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus. And in verse 11, he speaks of the fruit of righteousness coming through or from Jesus. The first fruit of being in Jesus, that which characterizes the saints, is love. And the other fruit that Paul speaks of is knowledge. You would expect Oxford, of all places, to be somewhere you can acquire knowledge, and you certainly can. But Paul here is talking about something deeper than the sort of knowledge you acquire in studying for a degree or in writing your doctoral thesis. Paul speaks of growing in spiritual knowledge, praying that the saints may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. We've loved as a family 
having the opportunity at St. Andrews to grow in knowledge and depth of insight as we've learned from God's word. For example, through the preaching, through home groups, through children's work and, and so on. The priority of the word in our corporate life at St. Andrews is essential. The Bible is the only reliable source of such knowledge that Paul speaks of. And God's people need to gather around God's word as they seek to support and encourage one another in growth and in gospel outreach. In his letter to Timothy, Paul reminds us, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The knowledge that Paul prays for the Philippians is that, is that which leads to an understanding of the gospel, something that enables the Christian to approve and practice what is morally and ethically superior. It is that which is best in verse 10. So the ability to distinguish is a mark of maturity. When a baby learns to speak, it may call every four-legged animal a doggy. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's true. But then the child discovers that there are cats, mice, cows, and other four-legged creatures. Begins to distinguish between them. And to a little child, one car is just like another, but to a car-crazy teenager, well, he can spot the differences between models faster than his parents can even spot the cars coming. The ability to discern is a sign of spiritual maturity. Growing Christians is about developing, discerning love. Love that is informed and directed by spiritual knowledge. St. Andrews has been growing Christians for over a hundred years, or correction, rather. God has, for over a hundred years, been growing Christians through St. Andrews. And we can be confident that God will bring to completion that good work. In conclusion, all the saints have been set apart to serve God, partnering with one another in gospel outreach and growing in knowledge and love. But it is God who gives the growth. It is God who gives grace and peace. And God is the one to whom the glory and praise will go. Next week, the Mobies will be moving to Harwell after 16 joyful years at St. Andrews. Though separated from you in distance, okay, only by 17 miles, we will remain close to you in spirit. The saints in Christ Jesus at St. Andrews will always be in our hearts and will always be the subject of our prayers. And we will thank our God every time we remember you. Praise God.